What motivated me to get into contract trading in the, in the first place is I want my kids to grow up in a safer world than I have today. I envision a world where people don't have to worry about attacks taking planes out of the sky and power plants being blown up and so on. Hi, welcome to the Open at Intel podcast. I'm Catherine Druckmann, an open source evangelist here at Intel. Today, I'm joined by Dan Middleton of Intel and Dave Thaler of Microsoft to talk about securing data in use with confidential computing and their work with the Confidential Computing Consortium, a Linux Foundation project that aims to accelerate the adoption of trusted execution environment technologies and standards. Enjoy, and please join us again for more important open source conversations. I'm talking to Dan Middleton, a principal engineer at Intel, who is also the chair of the Confidential Computing Consortium's Technical Advisory Council, and to Dave Thaler, a software architect at Microsoft, and a previous chair and member of the Confidential Computing Consortium's Technical Advisory Council. Thank you both for joining me to teach us all about confidential computing. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Catherine, for letting us be here. So first, I think we should cover some basics. What is confidential computing? Confidential computing, when we first created the Confidential Computing Consortium, we decided one of our first tasks was to actually define the term confidential computing. Mm -hmm. So we all knew what we were talking about and coming together for. Uh, and so we, uh, one of our first tasks was to agree on that definition. And so our definition, uh, which you'll find on the website now, is confidential computing is the protection of data in use by performing computation in a hardware-based, attested, trusted execution environment. Now, of course, that then begs the question of what's a trusted, trust, mm -hmm. what is a trusted execution environment, right? And so uh, what is a trusted execution environment? This is a natural follow-up question, right? right. So that we get asked. And so then we had to say, what is a trusted execution environment? And we decided we did not want to invent our own term for trusted execution environment. We wanted to use a term uh, that could be agreed on with standards bodies. And so I also participate in the Internet Engineering Task Force uh, on committees that deal with trusted execution environments. And so we co-developed uh, a term that a trusted execution environment is a computing environment that does three things. Okay. It has to provide uh, code integrity, data integrity, and data confidentiality. Okay. What that means is that the code and the data that's executing inside the trust execution environment can't be compromised um, or the data can't be read by anything that's running outside of that trust execution environment. Okay. And so confidential computing, confidential computing is anything that does that in a way that is based on hardware, not software, and is fully attestable. Dan, do you have anything to add or... Yeah, yeah. So we've got this this very precise definition now that, that builds on work in, in other standards bodies. Um, sometimes people need an even you know more introductory definition. So like one of the reasons I guess that confidential computing is around is for a long time now we've we've had the ability to protect data when it's at rest. So like when you write something to disk, you might have disk encryption. And if you're going to go send that information to somebody else, you're probably going to transmit it over TLS or some other sort of protected protocol. But when you actually go to use that secret, and it's you know that's when it's most vulnerable and arguably most valuable. So what confidential computing does is it lets you protect that when you're actually operating on it. So maybe a sort of a, a terse way to think about it is is when your program is running, it is running in some sort of maybe protected memory. Um, maybe it's only decrypted when it actually enters the CPU package. So th there's different ways to implement this, but it's really getting at protecting data in use. And sometimes people think 
uh, may not understand what data in use means, but mm. you know, Dan, Dan gave a great explanation, right? Data in use is when it's in use by, say, the CPU, right? When it's actually doing computations, mm -hmm. when it's actually trying to um, perform some operation on the data rather than just storing it or sending it across a network. Yeah, that is that is actually a really good good explanation. I, I wanted to go back and touch on a word that you mentioned, Dave, in your answer, and that is attestation. What what is attestation, and why is attestation so important in confidential computing? Well, without attestation, then what you have is you have a, a system that may provide other properties, but how do you know that it provides those properties? Right? Is it just oh, trust me, it's providing these properties? Well. What we strive for in confidential computing is more than just, well, trust me, right? That there's some basis on which you can establish trust for yourself, right? So we don't want a, say, a customer using confidential computing technology to say, yeah, I just inherently trust the, let's say, a cloud provider, that they're going to do the right thing. No, we want them to be able to validate stuff for themselves, okay? And so this gets into what do I see as the trust model? What does confidential computing protect, right? What we're trying to do, or tries to provide enough tools to do, is to say how many different entities are there that could be compromised and get access to your data or change the operations and do whatever it is that's, that's, that's dangerous that you're worried about. Okay? And so one way to think about that is, is how much code is there for me to protect? Because there could be, you know, maybe there's a bug in the code that I'm worried about. Maybe um, I'm running some other software, and how do I know it's running the right software and things? But there's also the avenue that says how many different organizations are empowered to touch that code or to see the data. Okay? And the more organizations there are, then, of course, your attack surface area is higher, right? Because there could be a compromise in that organization. There could be a nefarious actor or, you know, um, some social engineering attack and so on. So we're trying to also provide tools that say what's the minimum number of organizations that you inherently have to trust? Okay. Mm. And it turns out that the minimum that you could possibly get to, and it may not be practical under all cases, but the absolute minimum is basically two. Okay. And those two are yourself or your own admins, right? Those right. who are actually the authoritative of the policy, right? Okay. And number two, uh, in practice, whoever creates the hardware that's in the chip, right? Because if you have a bunch of hardware chips, it's not like you're going to crack out every possible piece of hardware and deconstruct it and verify that, that hardware is doing something. Um, that's really not practical. You could, but unless you're like a major defense department or something like that with infinite budgets, you probably can't inspect every possible piece of hardware that gets shipped to you. So you've got to have some trust in whoever made that chip. Okay. And so this is the same sort of trust that you get when you get, say, your debit card, or your credit card. It's got a chip in there and a chip and pin system, right? You're trusting that that chip hasn't been compromised and you're trusting that with your money, right? Um, and so other things can't, you can choose to trust beyond the chip manufacturer and, uh, you know, basically the hardware itself and your own admins. Everything else is a choice and says everything else for confidential computing. There are ways to address that say, attestation is a way of saying, how do you know that you're getting the right thing while only trusting those two entities? Minimum viable trust. That's, that's an interesting, yeah. Uh, I enjoy yeah, your illustration. Dan, yeah, Dan. Yeah, no, I think that's great. It's, I think it's one of these concepts that uh, is both very simple and arbitrarily complex, depending on, on where and how you want to approach it. So on, on the real simple side, it's just prove to me you have the security in order to protect whatever secret I'm going to send to you. So that's, you know, you're asserting, you're attesting to that, or the software is doing that. Um, but then you can really start peeling the, the onion on that. And without doing that, I think just one of the other things to observe about uh, attestation as it relates to confidential computing 
And you, you will see the word attestation in a variety of other uh, contexts uh, used in maybe less precise ways or with different um, security models underneath them. But with confidential computing, it is a, it's like a, a new building block. So if you're a developer, like one of the fun things to do is go play with new APIs. They give you new capabilities that you didn't have before. And one of the new capabilities that you get with confidential computing that you can actually code to is attestation. You can make different decisions about how you're going to interact between systems based on what kind of um, level of security that you can infer uh, from the other host that you're interacting with. I, I, I can give maybe two analogies that are not comf that are not even computing analogies that maybe anybody can relate to that I would put in the category of attestation. Right? And these are two that we often use to help describe ways of doing attestation in computing environments, right? By, by, by analogy, right? So the first one is uh, what we might call sort of the passport or maybe the driver's license analogy that says, okay, if you're going to cross a border, right, you can present a passport at, uh, the, at, at the border crossing, right, at the, at the customs and immigration, say, at the airport, right? And they will look at that and say, I don't trust you, but I trust that you have this valid passport that you're showing me. This comes from, say, the United States government. And I trust the United States government to only issue passports to, to like citizens and people that pass a set of requirements. And I can look at this thing and at face value, I can tell whether this is actually issued by the United States. It doesn't look like it's forgery and so on. I can use that. And so I can pass things by presenting something I carry around with me and present it to different things. And as long as it, it hasn't expired, right, because it's an expiry date of my passport, right, so I can present this in different ways. It's a way of you doing attestation um, with your passport. And again, the same thing applies to a driver's license. If you're going to say, I'm going to show that I'm over age 18 or something like that, mm -hmm. I can get in by showing my driver's license, right? And so that's a type of attestation where somebody else is giving you a piece of evidence, or in this case, we'll call it an attestation result that you can present to other people because some external authority has vouched for you. And the person you're presenting it to actually trusts that external authority, okay? So that's what we call the, the, the passport model of attestation. Another, another analogy that some systems work this way is more like a background check. So if you're going to apply for a job or you're going to apply for a loan, okay, what you're going to do is you're going to go and fill out this application and provide a bunch of personal data. Okay? Off in the end, the bank or the uh, hiring company is not just going to look at that necessarily and just treat it at face value. They will often go and contract with some background check agency, send off the data to some, some party that they trust. Okay? that the person that presented to fill out the application may not even know who that is, right? But they send it off to some background check organization. Does this person check out, right? And they may check, you know, criminal records. They may check, um, you know, previous, you know, credits, credit ratings and so on. And so they'll get back the report. And based on the report they get back, and they say, ah, okay, I will give this person a job or give this person a loan, right? It's a different type of attestation where here, the person in the first case, I was carrying around a passport. I know exactly who it is. I know I'm a U.S. citizen and so on. In the second case, I have no idea who it is, right? It's the person or the entity or the organizations making the decisions to whether to grant it that actually contracts with some place that they trust okay and they're getting something that and so they're sending off this evidence okay the evidence in this case being you know the job application loan application and getting back the attestation result which is kind of like a passport but they're getting that directly from say the credit reporting agency or the background check agency okay that's what we call the background check model but either way the entity that's making the decision gets a, a report they can trust either because the uh, a tester is carrying it around with them and presenting it to them in the passport case, or because the, uh, the, the relying party organization making the decision has some trusted entity they can go off to. Either case, the party making the decision has to have a trusted agency or trusted entity that they can use. In the first case, it's say the US government, in my example, 
And in the second case, it might be a background check uh, agency that they contract with. But in both cases, they get a set of evidence that did not come from the person filling out the form or wanting to get in, right? It comes from somebody else that they trust. And that's what attestation is about, is how do I get uh, a, a proof or assurance from something that I trust to know whether to trust the entity that's presented to me? Verifiable credentials. Thank you very much. That was an incredibly good answer. So thank you for that. So we're, we're all about open source here. I'm a longtime enthusiast. When you're talking about these trusted execution environments, why is it important that confidential computing adopt open standards and an open source software ecosystem? Is it a sustainability question? Is it a security question? Is it all of the above? What are your thoughts on that? It, it's probably all of the above, but I think with, with security technologies, the more you can ex- inspect those technologies, the more you can trust them. Uh, we, we have a security concept uh, in, in the security world called Kirchhoff's principle, uh, which is roughly that the, the security of a system shouldn't depend on the secrecy of its design, where sometimes it's, it's phrased the other way around, that if the, if the design is fully exposed, that shouldn't defeat the security of the system. So we like as much as possible to see security technologies in open source. Um, so that's why you have things like uh, OpenSSL or, or other uh, cryptography primitives that, that have been written in a way that they can be inspected. So that's one of the great things about the CCC, about the Confidential Computing Consortium, is we're a home for these software stacks that are building up over the, the confidential computing hardware. So that's a great point, Dan. I think uh, for me, it goes back to the concept we talked about a few minutes ago about this minimum viable trust and how many different organizations are there that I have to trust, right? Well, if there's open source code, then I shouldn't have to trust the author of the code. Why? Because I can look at the code myself and can establish uh, establish trust in the code itself. I can verify what that code is doing without having to trust the author of it. If it's closed source, then it's like, well, I have to trust the author of it to generate correct code. If it's open source, I could say I could accept code from somebody I intentionally don't trust, right? Because I can analyze the code myself. And so this notion of the security vetting of the code allows you to remove an entity from the implicit trust chain by trusting the code itself. You can do that yourself or... Often you might contract with a security agency. Again, this goes back to, I can choose to bring another agency into trust. I can contract out with a security agency that I do trust that can go and vet code, okay? And so open source is what the Confidential Computing Consortium uh, helps to to, to fund and to foster. Um, Although in theory, it's not the openness of the source that's important, it's the actual vetting of it. So if you had open source that nobody looked at, Okay. It would not be any more secure than closed source. It's the looking at it, it's the number of eyes and the security vetting of it that actually is, makes it be more secure and more trustable. Sometimes I use the term vettable code. It says, has the code been vetted? And regardless of whether it's open or closed, has there been, you know, as a customer, has my security agency, whether it's my own in-house people or an agency that I trust, have they been able to vet that code, whether it's open or not? Okay. But when it's open source, that provides a way for the confidential consortium to, uh, to support it and to see it and to actually encourage the vetting of that code. I am really glad that you brought that up because it reminds me of like another aspect of attestation that we didn't talk about. We could we could probably do a whole podcast just on attestation. I think I think I think we should. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
one of the things that you can do after you've decided that you trust the code is that you can cryptographically recognize that code ever after. And that's one of the things that you get in an attestation. We often refer to it as a measurement of the code. Uh, usually that's implemented by taking a cryptographic hash of the code. And if you're not familiar with cryptographic hashes, it gives you essentially a fingerprint. It's like a magic number that only the in, only those same inputs will arrive at. So if, if I've written something that's going to protect your um, bank account, and then Dave goes and takes a copy of it and makes a little backdoor in that for himself, his code won't measure the same as my code. So you will be able to instantly tell a difference. Even if all Dave changed was a one to a zero, like check for a password, don't check for a password that will show up as a completely different hash value or a completely different measurement of the code. So, okay, we've talked a little, we've talked about confidential computing, but I wanted to shift the focus a little bit to the confidential consortium, the confidential computing consortium a little bit more. What is the central goal of the consortium and, and what are some end results you hope to see? Where, where do you see the greatest opportunities for impact? The, the central goal of the Confidential Computing Consortium is to see how many people we can make say Confidential Computing Consortium over and over because it's such a long title. Yes, five times fast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I struggle. The struggle is real. Um, oh, yeah. Can you imagine how That's many times funny. I have to say it? Yes. More, more maybe importantly to the, the companies that supports this consortium is that we are there to promote the adoption of confidential computing. We are there as a home for open source components and collaboration. Yeah, back in uh, 2019, when we first created the Confidential Computing Consortium, uh, for the past two years before that, I had been talking to a number of customers, typically in the um, IoT space and in critical infrastructure, maybe those two spaces. Um, and we found that there was maybe three or typically two types of customers out there are two types of organizations out there. One type of organization was ones that said, um, we've got data in flight protected, right? We're using TLS, we're using encryption of all of our network protocols, and we've got all of our stuff encrypted on disk and so on. We're certified at the highest level of, you know, blah, 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 you know, IEC 62443, if I'm in the critical infrastructure, and there's no problem, okay? And so therefore we're good. And what happens, they get hacked. They have, you know, Triton and Indestroyer and, you know, power plant shut down. And why is this? They're already certified and they're already protecting data in flight and data at rest. And they're certified at the highest level. So why did they get hacked? So there's this organization's mindset that says, I don't have any problem. I'm doing fine. Okay. Second category is people that understand that there is this other problem. There is this other gap. And they think that all hope is lost and there's nothing they can do. The job of the Confidential Competing Consortium is to move people from those two categories into a third category, which is they believe and understand there's a problem and that they know that they can actually do something about it. And it's the being able to do something about it that is the case for confidential computing. Okay? Um, all of us that came together in the Confidential Competing Consortium all have something to do with confidential computing. That's why we joined it, right? We want to promote that industry. Some of the people that are people are actually competing with each other, right? But the bigger problem is not competition among the members. Bigger problem is growing the pie, convincing people that there's a case for confidential computing consortium or confidential computing. That's the job of the consortium is to grow the pie, right? All of us have a common interest because our biggest competitor is lack of knowledge. 
And so how do we actually make sure that there's knowledge out there that grows the, 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 the understanding of the need for confidential computing? And then secondly, how do we then make sure that there's support for, for uh, products and, and open source projects, for example, are things that benefit all of us because we can all make use of the same projects, right? So how do we get some shared pooling of resources and grow the need in the industry and the, in the market for confidential computing consortium? That's what brings us all together. I, I love that, that the, uh, the biggest competitor is lack of knowledge. Uh, that's fantastic. Another area of impact is just like the, the reason that we are here, you, know, you could look at it as promotion of a technology. If, if you're somebody that's into tech, you know, you, you like seeing cool things get better and, and getting to experiment with things and make new things. Um, but, you know, a reason that a lot of us are in security is that we get to play a little role in stopping bad guys. And if you think about like these three phases of data of data at rest, and data in motion. And then we have this new area that's never been able to be protected before of protecting data while it's in use. We close down a whole avenue of attacks that the bad guys just don't get to do anymore. So I think that's a pretty exciting area for, for anybody getting involved in confidential computing. Yeah, that, that's something, yeah, I would actually like to follow up with. And, and But something else that you mentioned was, is, was influence as a goal. Which communities and standards bodies would you most like to influence? I can take that one. So there are some standards bodies that we already work with. And so when you say what one would I most like to, the, the ones that we're not already working with, right? Because in some sense, uh, we're already doing a good job with working with some of them. I mean, IETF I mentioned earlier, which is the Internet Engineering Task Force for listeners. And that's the one that does... Um, you know, core networking, it's your, your HTTP, your um, TCP IP, how do you get an IP address? How do you get um, you know, basic communication across the network? Um, that one we already got close communication with. Uh, the ones that I think are the biggest gaps uh, right now are probably regulators. I mentioned in the example in critical infrastructure, there was this IEC 62443, um, which is a security specification um, for critical infrastructure and, you know, the uh, safety, uh, IOT equipment and so on. And the problem that one of the problems that exists today is that when people are buying equipment, okay. And of course there's many uses for confidential computing, including, you know, financial data and so on. But here, I'm going to talk, my example here is about actual physical equipment, you know, things like, you know, power plants and so on. Um, for, for them, the problem is that some of the regulations and some of the security specifications actually don't mention this notion of protecting data in use. And so that's why I said you, they still get hacked, right? You still, your power plant goes down as example, because this is the customers I was talking to in the 2018 and 2019 before COVID hit. And so the problem though, is since the regulations don't make any distinction, then consider two vendors. One has a confidential competing solution and one doesn't. The customer looks at that, they both check the same checkboxes. So which solution am I gonna buy? I'm gonna buy either the cheaper one or the one that has more features. I'm not going to buy it for security because there's no security checkbox. And so how do I get that security checkbox there so they actually understand? Remember, the biggest competitor is lack of understanding. It's the ones that can actually make a difference there in terms of what the checkboxes are that people are looking at. Okay, And so the standards bodies that fall into that category are often regulators that have those checkboxes in specific industries that would make the world a safer place. So that's my answer anyway. Dan, what do you think? Yeah, I think, uh, like, like you said, we're already... Um, working pretty well with, we've got cross group membership across IETF and, and the trusted computing group. Um, additionally, we've got the, we've got risk five joining us now. So 
that's a just another kind of CPU architecture, and that's that one is openly developed. So we've got members from that joining. Um, we want to get out with with NIST and other bodies to help people recognize that here is another approach that can be added in as as defense in depth, maybe in in some places as the unique or only way to protect some part of the stack. Um, but just really getting that getting that out there in a structured way, in a well-reviewed way, so that uh, you know, end, con end consumers are, are actually protected by this technology. So picking up on, on something you said, I'm back to the conversation about impact and protecting against more types of attacks. Does competential computing make the world a safer place? You kind of alluded to that. And I wondered if you could go a little bit into more detail about the types of leaks and attacks that confidential computing mitigates. It, it can certainly help. Okay, um, it's what got me into what got me motivated to work on confidential computing in the first place. Right, what motivated me to get into confidential computing in the, in the first place is I want my kids to grow up in a safer world than I have today. Right, I want to have a I envision a world where people don't have to worry about attacks taking planes out of the sky and power plants being blown up and so on. Right, and if there was no confidential computing and the attacks keep increasing then that's what I'm scared of. And I, that's what motivates me has, how do we actually solve those? So if we look at actual attacks of say, taken out power plants, right? So there was a well-known attack that was called Triton that I often cite and a company called FireEye did a breakdown of it. Uh, and, and I've met with uh, the people that actually owned the equipment um, that was sold into, into the environment that was hacked. And so I understand um, what the actual issues were that made this power plant get taken out. And there were again, issues of uh, data in flight, sorry, the data at, and again, there were issues of data in use, okay, where they were already protecting data in, in, in at rest and in flight, but what they were not protecting was data in while it was being executed, right? And so um, because that's where uh, the attackers moved to whatever was the easiest attack vector, right? And if the easiest attack vector is to say, insert malware while the thing is running by, uh, by uh, using a buffer overrun or whatever it is, right? Then that's what they'll move to. And right now there's a bunch of, uh, cases where that's the case. They're moving into the data uh, and used to attack. And they use those to attack and things that we think of as being safety. Since when you use the word safer, right, you think about things that can actually do physical harm, whether it's harm to the environment, whether it's harm to people, whatever it is, right? And so um, when confidential computing is applied to those types of equipment, that's why I use the equipment example instead of a financial example, right? Because often people think of safety as being, you know, physical safety and security. You could also think of uh, financial safety in the financial market, too, and make the same arguments there, right? But for me, yes, it can, because it can close a whole avenue of attacks that we've already seen being compromised by uh, nefarious actors, well-funded uh, mm -hmm. actors. When you think about power plants and things, how big of an impact can you have, right? Uh, one of the good definitions of security, probably the one that I like the best, is the definition of security is to make the cost of the attack be more than the value of the asset protected. Okay. So in critical mm -hmm. infrastructure, the value of the asset protected is just huge, right? It's the whole environment, it's a whole community, it's you know, loss of life, that types of thing. And so therefore, your, the, the uh, cost of the attack needs to be commensurately higher, right? That means you have to have a much stronger level of defense in things that affect safety than just things like, you know, my email is perhaps uh, less important than, say, the local power plant that's keeping the hospital um, actually working, right? 
And so the power plant keeping the hospitals working, it probably needs to have a higher level of security than just my email does, right? Or even or even my credit card, right? Where today, classically, the amount of security on your credit card actually has better protections in, say, uh, both hardware and legal infrastructure than often uh, cases in, say, the IoT space, Internet of Things space. Yeah, that's, that's a uh, disturbing thought. <laughs> that's pretty sobering. I think another... That's why we're motivated to do this, right? Mm-hmm. That's, yeah. Um, and we, we, all, we always want to have a, like, a responsible adoption of the technology. So we think that, it, yeah, it's definitely going to make the world a safer place, but it's going to make the world a safer place if people understand how to apply it. It's not going to be a magic wand that stops every possible attack. And so one of the things that that we work on in the CCC is helping educate on what that responsible adoption looks like. Recently, we published a a white paper on terminology, which sounds maybe super not exciting. But what what that breakdown is on the terminology is if you are working with, say, a process or a container or a virtual machine, or some other artifact, what should be your expectation of confidential computing underneath you? What kind of confidential computing should you target underneath you? Um, and, and getting to that level of, of education and understanding is what will make confidential computing successful in preventing attacks. So. I think of personal privacy, as in data privacy, as intertwined with safety. Can confidential computing create a world where all people, including end users, have control over their information? Creating a world requires multiple pieces. Okay, confidential computing is one of the pieces, but by itself, it can't create anything. Okay, it, what it can do is it can uh, provide some tools that can allow certain things to allow um, individuals to have control over their information according to a bunch of constraints, but you've got to change the other things too, right? So if, for example, that you have entrusted your data to a set of administrators that are humans, those humans can store things with confidential computing, but if you don't trust the humans, then you haven't created right. the world yet, right? You've created you've created a piece of that world, right? And so confidential computing is one of the building blocks, but it can't solve and it doesn't try to solve, say, social engineering attacks. And so you've got to put all those things together before you can really get a world where you're in control of information. So you say confidential computing is a piece of the puzzle. I, I think confidential computing actually seems like a loaded term. How confidential can we get? What, what problems do confidential computing technologies solve? And, and what are the limitations? So what, in other words, what are the missing pieces that we have to add to create these safer and more private and secure environments? Yeah, so I, I mentioned we have that, that terminology paper that we just put out, and that shows you this nice spectrum of granularities of we can protect down to the library level. Uh, and all the way out to an entire guest operating system. And so depending on what level of granularity you pick, you are going to close off different amounts or different uh, attack vectors. So for example, if you take a, if you have a security sensitive library or you've got some code that you can sequester into a library, you can create the most precise boundary then 
and deliver it with a technology that will isolate that library. It's that library is then protected from a variety of attacks that come from even within that same host or guest operating system. It probably won't protect you from attacks that take possession, like physical possession of, of the machine. And there might be some other side channels that, that can be still exploited uh, to get into that protected enclave. But you know, by and large, a lot of the most common kinds of attacks whether they come uh, as like a network-based attack against that host, or they come from some malware that's already loaded into the same operating system. It, it just won't be able to get at the data because that data is going to be probably encrypted in main memory. And then you can go out to the other end of the spectrum and say, you've got a workload that you have been protecting on-prem in your own environment, and you want to go push that out to a cloud environment or to somebody else's host, um, who you probably realistically trust that provider not to be a sort of a full-on adversary, but you, you can't be protected against bad actors within that organization or from maybe other tenants in the, in the same hosting environment. Uh, and if, you, if you've protected your virtual machine using confidential computing, you are walled off from those other tenants and, and many of the, the inside actors in that cloud environment. And, and that, I think, if you, if you look at things from a, a practical attack perspective, that does close down a lot of avenues that, that would otherwise be available. So I would say, Catherine, uh, that uh, when you say confidential computing is kind of a loaded term, I would say security or the word secure is also a loaded term. That's fair. And w w one reason for that, and, and this is just an instance of that question, right? Which is um, secure against what and secure from whom is really the question. And the same thing applies to confidential. Uh, confidential from whom, right? And so it's loaded because um, I try not to use the term, you know, security or something is secure. It's really secure against what, right? Mm. Or, or secure from whom or confidential from whom, right? Um, it's, that's what I need to get it to be perhaps less loaded, right? And so that goes back to the uh, discussion we had earlier about how many different organizations or entities do I need to trust, okay? And so how confidential can you get goes back to that answer is, the, the best, the most confidential you can get is where there's only two people or two organizations or two types of things you have to trust, which is your own admin, which might be yourself in an individual case, right? And whoever makes the security chip that's holding your stuff. And other than that, there's different degrees, right? I can choose to put other people in there or other organizations into, into the things that I trust. And so there's a spectrum of how confidential is something is, well, how many different organizations and pieces of software and pieces of hardware do I need to trust, right? And the fewer there are, the more confidential it is, the more there are, the less confidential it is because there's more different places that could in theory be compromised, whether it's through a social engineering attack, if it's organizations or physical attacks, if it's hardware or, you know, bugs attacks, if it's software, right? And so uh, I would say kind of some of the use cases for confidential computing tend to fall in the case where what you're considering as the adversary is whoever has physical possession of the device. Okay. So think about a couple of examples, right? The, prior to the, to the confidential computing consortium, there was things that people were very familiar with that were kind of this category. Um, say in the console gaming world, right? You have your, your Xbox or whatever your console is. Very popular for people to try to hack games and cheat. And so in this case, the, uh, the customer that buys the console is considered to be the adversary. 
as far as the console and the game creator is concerned, right? Because they have physical possession of it, they could crack it and so on. So as to how to make that be difficult, okay? So a lot of the techniques in confidential computing actually were put into consoles. So, you know, Xbox One, for example, was a development of Xbox 360. And from the Microsoft's perspective, that was one of the places where confidential computing started being developed. Another example is in the chip and pin system, right? Where you got your credit cards and your debit cards, and you recently got them replaced with MagStripe to ones that had chips in them. Again, it's the confidential computing technologies, the trust execution environments that come in, right? Because of the previous mentioned uh, principles. And so now this notion that says, okay, now maybe a uh, cloud hoster or any other types of IoT mechanisms that says, there's an IoT device that's in a public location. It's a ATM, it's a camera on the outside of a building, whatever it is. It's applicable to all the cases where you, where you trust, where, where the adversary could actually get physical possession. Okay? And how do you up the bar there so that they can't just trivially do things like they could today. Yeah, and it, if I had a problem with with the term confidential computing, uh, it would be that we we only said confidential in it. So uh, often with security, we have this we talk about this triad, the CIA triad: confidentiality, availability, and integrity. Or integrity and availability. If I said that in the right order, um, but integrity is is maybe even more valuable than, than confidentiality in confidential computing. And Dave's first example was, was getting right at that with like the integrity of a game. It's not fun to play if somebody's cheating. Um, and you know, we could, we could go back to the beginning of the conversation here with attestation. Attestation tells you about the integrity of the program or the uh, environment that you are interacting with. So uh, I guess, if I if I thought it was a, a loaded term or there was something that we wanted to change about confidential computing, it would be finding a way to put the word integrity in there that wouldn't make it even harder for me to mm. say confidential computing consortium. I really don't want to say the confidential computing, confidential and integrity computing consortium because uh, my lungs aren't that big. There are quite a few open source foundations, several under the Linux Foundation umbrella as as the consortium is. How is the Confidential Computing Consortium different? How does it, and how does its work complement the rest of the work of the Linux Foundation? Yeah, so the, the Linux Foundation covers quite a bit of ground. It's, it's, uh, it's got a, a variety of different topical areas. And the reason that we, one of the reasons that, that we created this particular consortium within the Linux Foundation is there wasn't really a place at that time at the end of 2019, early 2020, for, for development and experimentation and collaboration on confidential computing software. So we, we needed a home for it. We needed a place for all these interested vendors that were already developing products with it to be able to collaborate in the open. And uh, as the, the technology has matured and been adopted, we've seen that there are actually confidential computing projects that have sprung up within the other existing organizations. So one of one of the other areas where I spend my time is over in the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, the CNCF, that's home of Kubernetes and related projects. And, and they have a project that's exploring how do you intersect containers with confidential computing. Uh, and and you know what we're we're happy to see that project over there. We we love cross pollinization, and I would anticipate over the the coming year, the coming years, that we will see 
um, work from, from other domains come into the Confidential Computing Consortium, where it's interesting to do that work in a different context. And I, and I can give you like a, maybe a, a more specific example. There are adjacent technologies like homomorphic encryption. And those technologies can be complemented or augmented by deploying them with confidential computing. Uh, specifically with, with homomorphic encryption, it, it lets you do something related to what confidential computing does. It lets you operate on encrypted data without decrypting it, um, but it lacks certain integrity capabilities. Um, there, there's some other areas where it could be augmented and seeing the two of these things come together would be interesting. And I would be probably more surprised if, if anything, if we didn't see a project come into the CCC that tackled, if not the intersection of, of homomorphic encryption and confidential compute, uh, if it's the intersection of, of one of the other adjacent technologies uh, or something that's more on the adoption end of the spectrum that you have like a top level use case that relies on confidential computing and we're a good place to to figure out some of the the common integration points and, and i could probably go on ad nauseum of all the different things that i would like to see come into the consortium but we're you know we're an open collaborative body we're an organization that that brings the all our welcome here spirit we want to see contributors from all areas of, of the industry, from all walks of life. Uh, everybody's welcome to, to come collaborate with us. Thanks, Dan. I guess I will add that among those under the Linux Foundation umbrella, what makes the CCC different and what makes each of them different is purely scope, right? Because there is some common you know, legal uh, infrastructure that, that um, helps all of them but each of them takes on a specific mission in terms of a particular technology, right? So what makes the Confidential Computing Consortium different from something else underneath the Linux Foundation, like the EDPF Foundation or any of the other ones, um, is each of them focuses on a particular technology. And so they can complement each other to the extent that those two technologies can both be used together in some way for some purpose, right? And so there's gonna be overlap and say certain use cases or certain scenarios, which says, I wanna use confidential computing together with you know, some other uh, technology or for some other use case that needs them both. And that's where you start to have, you know, interactions between things. Dan mentioned, you know, the RISC-V foundation, right? If you're going to do confidential computing on a RISC-V processor, then both foundations are interesting and important, right? So that's a great example as uh, one that Dan gave earlier. There's also some organizations that are not underneath the legal Linux foundation, in which case the legal frameworks are a little bit different, even if the scope is very similar. So an example of that is trustedfirmware.org, right? TrustedFirmware.org has a bunch of other open source projects um, that uh, are often confidential computing will make use of those projects. Some of those are actually confidential computing. Um, that one uh, is a different legal framework that is maybe at a different layer of the, of the stack, right? Maybe a lower layer of the stack per se, but you might use them both together, even though both of them work together for confidential computing in that sense. So I'd say, uh, so the short answer is either differing in scope um, for different organizations, or perhaps in a small number of cases, differing in legal infrastructure, but still used together. So uh, things like um, those familiar with SSL or TLS, right? A lot of projects use things like um, OpenSSL, right? 
where OpenSSO was clearly needed for confidential computing uh, for many of the use cases, but OpenSSL itself was not in the confidential computing consortium. And that's where you get into things that complement each other. So I wanted to pick up something that Dan said, and that is being a very welcoming organization, encouraging contribution. How and why does a developer get involved? And, and in particular, um, what are some challenges that the organization faces that a a new volunteer or a developer maybe maybe that's listening right now could help with? Yeah, um, I I think that the the how and why probably depends, of course, for for each person. But one of the things that that I was introduced to very early on with with open source is that it it can be fun, it can be social. Um, you get to come in and learn from experts. Uh, you get to, to cross-pollinate with, with other companies to, to learn things, maybe uh, a way that, that other companies are developing software that yours isn't, or if you're not even affiliated with a company, you get to come in and interact with experts. And it's all really um, merit or, or contribution-based. So just, you know, you can come in and, and be passive and you can learn and then you can come in and find ways to contribute. I've, I've heard it said that that uh, there's this notion of, of cut wood, carry water. So there's there's always things to be done and, mm -hmm. and you can get started with doing just very simple things. If I think about, you know, that that's pretty general to any open source. What would somebody coming into confidential computing benefit from or be excited about. Um, I'm, I'm going to go back to the, the attestation well on that. That's, there's, there's so much that can be done with attestation right now. We have not just a, sort of a flat open source organization, but we also have special interest groups. So we have one that's specifically devoted to attestation. And we record all those meetings and you've got what I think of as probably like a full college semester of material out there that you don't even have to show up live to the meetings. You could just sit there and watch YouTube all day and, and come out of that with quite a bit of expertise in attestation. Uh, and you can also jump into code and get your, your hands dirty and, and learn about things through doing, which is something that I've always benefited from with, with confidential computing. You know, just across all of those, we we do believe strongly in uh, diversity, civility, and inclusion ethic. Uh, so everybody who wants to contribute is welcome to come with a constructive mindset and join in the community. Uh, we hope to, to welcome you if you join in a meeting directly or if your first interaction is uh, issuing a pull request or reading docs in a, in a project. We want that to be something that is welcoming to you. I love hearing that. That makes me happy. So it, we're, we're running out of time, I think, here. So I, th I think I'll wrap it up with one last question. H how do we make confidential computing ubiquitous? How, how does it become just the way computing is done, confidential by default? Or is that even a worthy end goal? It's hard to tell whether it will ever become ubiquitous if you mean, by ubiquitous, you mean in everything. And the reason for that is one of the challenges right now is actually economics. That having the technology to be confidential computing isn't free. There's some little incremental cost. Okay, And so one of the, the, the cases where confidential computing is, um, the, the, where the case is strongest is in, say, the financial world and in the critical infrastructure world. Why? Because there's a lot of, uh, basically, because the percent difference for confidential computing is small compared to the overall value. 
compared to what a bank does or compared to what a power plant does or whatever, the incremental cost of conference computing is very small. On the other end of the spectrum, if you think about uh, like consumer electronics, if I think about light bulbs becoming more and more, oh, I want to be able to control my lights with my phone type of thing. Okay? That's where the economics are most severe. And that's because people don't buy consumer electronics because of security. People put uh, you know, security cameras and things like that for security, but you don't buy light bulbs for security, right? So if you talk about ubiquitous such that every light bulb has confidential computing, there's actually an economic challenge right now, which is the, the value proposition isn't there because people don't buy light bulbs for security, right? They might buy nanny cams and door locks for security, but that's about it, right? And so I don't know if there's actually a strong case for it ever taking over in the consumer electronics space, except for in security products like door locks and, and security cameras, okay? Those two is pretty clear because you buy those for security, right? But for everything larger than that, um, you know, cloud environments and, you know, devices, gaming consoles, um, you know, critical infrastructure, planes, you know, all that types of stuff, then I think that will become ubiquitous as the understanding gets out there, right? Once the understanding gets out, it says it's not that hard as the products mature, as we get more experience, as you get more uh, standardization. Right now, there's a lot of heterogeneity in terms of things, and that's what we're trying to drive through both the CCC and through standards. That just becomes the common way that everyone understands to do it. So why are bridges secure? Because there's actual standards that people have for you know civil engineering and so on. And so we want to make that become the case for confidential computing too. So it just becomes as ubiquitous as it can be wherever the finances make sense. If there's some low end that it won't make sense for, we just have to live with that until the world changes in some way that lets the economics become negligible. Uh, another trend is maybe um, as uh, the same devices get used for multiple purposes, right? You know, it used to be that you might have had, you know, a, a pager and a GPS and a camera and a phone and so on. But now you just have a phone, right? Because it does all those things. And so that means it's things like, you know, your tap to pay in your phones. It says confidential computing, trust execution environments are now in phones. And so as you start to have devices that are used for multiple purposes, that means that it becomes more ubiquitous because now your GPS your pager and stuff all have confidential computing in them because of the other purpose of that device, right? And so that's another thing that will drive it in some cases where kind of phones is a good example there. Dan, do you have any thoughts or any additional thoughts on anything else at all that you wanted to make sure to, to mention? Yeah, I, I, I think Dave got it that uh, all of the classical places that we think of for like enterprise or data center or uh, cloud computing, where there is a security risk, confidential computing is going to be ubiquitous there. I, I think we've heard statements from uh, leading figures in the industry to that effect. Uh, I, I believe vendors are, are making that a fundamental part of their silicon technologies, including mine. And uh, so the momentum is there. I think one of the main hurdles for us to, to get that realization into the upper layers is, is awareness and familiarity with it. And I think maybe if somebody produced like a podcast about it, that would probably close the gap. Oh, I, I certainly hope so. <laughs> you, you heard it here first. Podcasting will make the world a safer place. <laughs> I think that I think I think I think that's it. Hundred percent. Yeah. By 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 raising awareness of confidential computing, yeah. podcasting will save the world. Um, well, I wanted to thank you both very much for for joining me and doing this. This has been really fantastic, and I appreciate all of your very thorough and, and very insightful answers. And 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 you know, I hope I hope we can do that attestation. 
episode one day because I think that's uh, again a conversation that needs to happen and I hope everyone listening has 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 really gotten gotten a lot out of this and I suspect that they have so yeah, thank you both very much thanks for having us on the podcast Catherine it's been a pleasure yeah thanks so much this was fun <laughs>